I wonder if you have a, do you have a favourite Christmas hymn or Christmas carol? Do you want to just be interested here? What, do you have a favourite carol? What, what, what would it be? No? No favourites? Oh, Holy Night. Yes, that's magnificent. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, wow. Yeah, oh, hold on. Any, anything else? Noel. Noel, the first Noel? Yeah. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. There's too many, aren't there? It's just sort of, we try to start singing them before Christmas. Um, got a favourite line? I don't imagine you would have, but do you have a favourite line from any um, song, any Christmas carol? Yeah. Uh, now that what song is that one? Hark there mild he lays his glory by born that man no more should die born to give them second birth that is it. yeah we normally sing that hymn um, you don't get out of I don't normally choose the songs I don't, and so the songs are not a reflection always of my preferences although I'm never unhappy with them but Hark the Herald Angels sing, I just sort of, you know, give that a bit of a push. <laughs> Not that it needs it. But my favourite line from a hymn, uh, there's one beautiful line out of Oh Holy Night, there's a number, but the, the one that I think is utterly brilliant is from the song um, uh, Bethlehem, how the little town of Bethlehem, and it's, the line goes, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. What an absolutely brilliant. You could die having written that line. I think I've had a useful life. Because that's exactly true. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. Today, uh, as you may have known from your Bible studies during the, during the week, we are, um, you may have noticed that we're looking at being threatened. The human, what, what does it mean to be human? One of the realities of being human is we live under a sense of threat. And I don't mean by that climate change or um, some other particular concern. You, those, of, those of you who are old enough may remember that back in the 60s and the late 50s, people lived in such fear of the almost unavoidable nature of the nuclear holocaust we were going to hit that they didn't have children. Um, strong sense of threat. It's said of humans, and I don't know how we know this is true, although I think it probably is, that humans are the only animals that live with a consciousness and a contemplation of their own death. Animals clearly have fear of things that could kill them or hurt them. But the suggestion has been made for some time that humans are unique, that we have a consciousness and a contemplation of our own death, which is, in a sense, the ultimate threat and a lot of other threats play off that one. So we're going to look together uh, at human beings as a an animal, a being that is threatened, how that's a serious part of your life and mine. But it's not in order to be depressing in the end, although if, if in the end all you're left with is reality that depresses you, it's best to embrace it. But that's not where Jesus leaves us. So let's have a look. Let's pray with me. Father in heaven, thanks again for the wonderful work you're doing in the young people, the kids uh, in our church, thank you for all those who serve so tirelessly in leading and serving them. Uh, and we do pray now for ourselves, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we would hear your voice through your word, 
and that you would help us to face the things that threaten us and to be able to embrace the one who can set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you have any verses from the Bible that you sort of believe, but you sort of maybe perhaps don't believe. I want to share with you a verse that I've always had trouble with. I sort of believed it, but sort of, I guess, if you push me, thought it was maybe a slight overstatement. And it was in the reading that Sue brought us. In fact, she chose to quite um, excellently repeat the key verse. Let me read you, though, um, the context. The context is talking about Jesus, the great high priest in Hebrews. And if you're not sure about Hebrews, you can go back and um, there are some sermons on the web that have been preached here. You can find sermons from other churches that are quite helpful. It's talking about Jesus coming and that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. If I was him, I'd be ashamed to call me his brother, but he's not. And he speaks of us also as being like his children. And then it says this in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. It's a very strong universal statement, isn't it? That what Jesus comes to do is to free you and others from slavery. The Bible uses this sort of phrase a few times, but here's the slavery it particularly mentions. That the evil one, the devil, has kept us as slaves. How? By the fear of death. Our concern, our anxiety about our death, our non-existence, or whatever it is that comes on the other side of life. We're going to look today at this, our universal fear. Then we're going to look at our instinctive flight from that fear and finally our freedom and the one who has fought so hard to win us, freedom from fear. So um, so I've got this little... I've often tried to buy one of these, but they're hard to buy, uh, and I found this one at Halloween... Um, I always want to go, alas, but but we won't. But a skull, and and some of you will know that it wasn't only Christians. Some of the great thinkers uh, in ancient Greece did this, but the early, not the early Christians, Christians have been doing it well into the 19th century. You may do it. Where particularly wealthy people and powerful people were encouraged to keep a skull on their desk to remind them of the one absolute certainty in their life, which we are prone to forget. It is a universal fear that the scriptures say that we are held in slavery by a fear of death. Now, uh, this is an extraordinary book. Quite a number of fairly impressive people suggest it's one of those must-read books written by a man who's certainly not Christian, The Denial of Death, and he has argued that the culture that you and I have grown up in and live in is the most most death-denying culture ever in human history. Our culture does more to pretend that death is not real or serious or whatever than any other culture in history. Now, he's an academic in these sorts of areas. He may be wrong. There may have been a culture more death-denying. But even our generation is much more death-forgetting than, say, our grandparents' generation. 
Our culture, he says, is very invested in pretending that death is not real. A whole lot of industries are caught up in that business to pretend that youth and health, etc., is available if we just pay enough money or do the right exercises. And we, we just want to keep pretending that death is not real. And yet, it's your one certainty. And yet, I don't even like talking about it because I know some of you are thinking, what are you doing, you morbid piece of work? Sometimes even if you speak to old people, like, like seriously old people, even older than... 68, um, <laughs> that you will get rebuked. I've been rebuked. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. That's a, that's a uniquely Western, well, it's not even Western. It's a 20th and 21st century Western thing. As if you shouldn't speak to old people about death, right? As if they are as stupid as our culture necessarily wants them to be. Even children think and talk about death until we teach them not to. Right? By our discomfort and we lie to them and stuff like that. Our culture, so he argues that an enormous amount of the nervousness of our culture comes from this fact that we will not face our one certainty. People rabbit on about their, their you know, retirement or their superannuation and yet a certain percentage of people never get to do it. You will get to die. And I don't want to say it's even it's time to grow up because kids get taught by us not to face the inevitable. Another book that came to my attention um, through something odd that happened at the beginning of the COVID period, when we really, and at the beginning, people in the medical profession, etc., were very, very, very concerned about what was going to happen because of what had happened in Italy. And one of the reasons things were not quite as bad as what happened in Italy is because of what happened in Italy because we learnt a lot from it, and also Italy's quite a different culture and where they live and how they live. Um, but I had three youngish people, like people in their late 20s, um, two of them probably not Christian, one certainly not Christian, and one Christian, actually raised with me their, their concern with death. Friends, that is so rare. Right? I don't think I've ever had a week like that in my life where people come to, you know, in conversations, they raise their concern and fear. That's why we did that thing we did with the, um, for a while on YouTube, uh, to try and reach out to people in a, in a time when you weren't allowed to reach out to people, to talk about stuff that people were thinking. Now, I think we got over that. We quickly enough learned, no, we don't need to think like that. But one of them directed me to this person's work. Um, Irving Yalom, he's... Um, uh, a professor of psychiatry, has written a number of uh, excellent books. This one is called Staring into the Sun, uh, which you're not supposed to do, as you know. And it's called uh, Facing and Dealing with the Terror of Death. Uh, and he talks about the fact that in his opinion, as we do this stuff that Becker talks about, Ernst Becker, we suppress it, but the fear, because it's a real fear and ultimately an inescapable fear, it oozes up into our thought process in other areas. It's a bit like someone's knocking on the door, we don't open the door, so he goes to the window and tries to enter through the vents and things like that. And um, so he would suggest, and others with him, that part of this generalised anxiety that our culture has in a way that is extreme and growing is because we suppress the thing that we ought to be facing and will make us fearful as humans, and therefore it comes up in this sort of generalised anxiety. 
And yet, as far as I understand it, you and I inhabit the safest culture in human history. We're so much safer than anyone who lived in the times of the Bible from all sorts of things. Raiders coming over the hill, there's no early warning systems. All sorts of diseases that can suddenly kill you. We're the most amazing medical system. The disease that should have killed me as a kid didn't kill me. Curse the medical profession for that. <laughs> Two of my three children at least would have died as kids. It's no wonder people used to have so many children. Now, it, it, it's rare, it's always horrendous when children die, uh, no matter how many you have. But we are so able to defeat disease. We have such a massive debt to medical science. We complain occasionally. But yet we are fearful and anxious. We've got a defence system. We never have to worry about them taking over the government. We've got police who, generally speaking, are terrific and will look after us as best they can. They make mistakes like you do in your areas of work as well. But we live in this remarkably safe, protected culture, and yet there's this massive anxiety, and anxiety very often leads to depression and other things. Why? These guys are suggesting it's because of our suppression of the reality. We are frightened of death. We're so frightened of it, we won't talk about it. We deny its reality, as they say. Denial ain't just a river that flows through Egypt. So we have this sort of universal fear of death. Uh, the Bible speaks of it. We flee from it. There are options in the wedding service. Uh, one is that you can say, as, as uh, I was brought up hearing in the old prayer books service, the 1662, 1611, something, 16... The one we've got, 1660, any other prayer book. The Book of Common Prayer, that one. It has got the phrase in the wedding service, we promise to love, etc., etc., until we're parted by death. So it's one of the two options you get in the Australian prayer book. It's not very often chosen. Um, because people think, Ooh. But there in the middle of the great celebration of love and the commitment of, and covenant of marriage was a reminder, it don't last forever. That's a nonsense. But we do say in the more modern version, which I think is perfectly fine, we say, as long as life lasts, which is the same thing. We are a culture that tends to avoid even mentioning death. Secondly, we've got an instinctive flight from death. The normal response, you know, the human is designed with magnificent systems of alarm and responses to fear and threat. Adrenaline and a whole lot of other systems that work really, really quickly. If I see something that frightens me, um, like I'm just making some coffee and suddenly Alison comes around the corner and I wasn't expecting her, right? I, the alarm system goes off and sometimes it can be something quite small and you feel the adrenaline sort of doing that thing it does and it gets out of the system so quickly. It's brilliant. There are all sorts of organs that do this to get you ready to either fight or flight. They get you at tippy-toe readiness. And... Um, it's a bit like our immune system. You've got all these, quite a number of organs work together to protect you from all the threats from external diseases and stuff. It's, it's amazing. But the basic response is fight or flight. And the general response in our culture, we fight it through medicine, we fight it through other things, but basically we flee from it. In fact, we even have expressions that one of them gets popped up, gets quoted in the Bible from Greek culture. Uh, eat, drink and be merry. Why? Well, yeah, tomorrow we die. A culture that is terrified of death will be obsessed with pleasure. Holidays, trips, something new. Just give me something to distract me, something to plan, something to talk about, something to compare notes about. Just something. Turn the music up. 
Friedrich Nietzsche talks about that we, we will not listen to the, the, the crazy dogs barking in the, in the basement, so we turn the music up. Uh, it's a massive flight from our one certainty. We are fragile, friends, and, and you know the Bible's got two great pictures it uses of that. It says we're like desert flowers. Now, I've not seen this, but apparently it was well known in the, in the Middle East that you can have a land that's utterly parched. It looks as if there's nothing there. And rain comes and the desert blooms. And there are apparently some flowers in that situation that bloom, do their thing and die within 24 hours. And the Bible says, I'm like one of those flowers. Now, you may never have thought of me as a flower. I I think I am. But apparently the desert blooms are particularly beautiful. Um, They need to attract all the help they can get with pollen doing all their stuff in the day. But it says you are like that. Your beauty, your strength, your glory... And the Bible does see you as a glorious thing. You're like a desert bloom. The other one that I can relate to a little more closely is it says you're like a mist. James picks this up. The Bible often says you're like a mist. You know, in the middle of a mist, you can hardly drive. It really affects all sorts of things around it, but it's gone in a flash. That's how stable, that's how fragile you are. We are very fragile, momentary creatures. We look at Joe, 103, 104 years, however many years he had. Friends, it's nothing, particularly when you compare it to eternity. 103-year life, it's nothing. It's over in a, it's over in a, in a moment. We've, but we hide. So the Bible says it encourages, as these guys do, <coughs> to stare at the sun. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me read you from Ecclesiastes 7. These verses were brought to my attention by the first minister I trained under when I got out of theological college. And those of you who have been at funerals that I take will know I sometimes quote this. Excuse me. This is from Solomon, wisest man who ever lived before Jesus. Says this. This is so wrong in a right way. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. So you've got a choice. Go to a house of mourning where someone has just died or a house of feasting, partying. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting for, here's the reason, death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. See the two reasons given? Death is the destiny of everyone. That was the tag that was attached to your toe when you were born Uh, how you get there how long the journey is death is the destiny to not face that is pathetic the living should take this to heart you don't take it to heart by cracking a joke about it and hiding behind a beer right? ponder it Or as Irving Yalom says, we should stare into the sun. Think about death. Think about what is it it about death that makes us uncomfortable. Now, sometimes we're forced into it because a pet dies. Sometimes we're forced into it because someone who we love dies. Sometimes a brush with cancer. See, why, why, why is cancer such a terrible word? I know many of you have are living with it, have lived with it, have dealt with it in all sorts of ways. Cancer is serious because it, it's the one that we know 
is a good chance of killing you. Now, thank God, um, a number of them we're sort of slowly getting on top of. It's brilliant. But the reason why cancer is so much more a concern than a cold or whatever is because of its association with death. We should take it to heart. We should face it. We should stare into the sun right, and work out what is it about this that makes us so uncomfortable, although it is so very common. He goes on and says this in verse 4, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. So the Bible does try and get us to, to flee from our instinctive flight that our culture wants us to do. So we've seen the universal fear. We've seen our default tendency to fly, to, fl to flee it. And lastly, the one who comes to fight for our freedom. It is the intent of God to set us free from our fear of death. Jesus comes, it says, see, he comes so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Even if it's an unconscious, even if it's a denied thing, it's real and powerful and controls. The king of terrors, it's called in the book of Job. And Jesus comes to deal with that. It's very interesting here because it, it's possible sometimes to think of the incarnation of Jesus where the, the eternal God becomes one of us and is incarnated, is enfleshed. Right? And that's, the, the Bible does use a really strong sort of, um, sort of gross word for the flesh that Jesus becomes. Uh, I didn't notice it, that, you know, that there's a meal that when I first moved out as, as a young bachelor, to, as a youth minister, I used to buy the huge cans from some company of chili con carne, right? It's chili with meat. And Jesus is incarnated. He is in meated. When it talks about us being flesh and blood, as it does in Hebrews, it's talking about humans in a sense in one of the more basic, uh, almost gross ways that you can describe what it is to be human. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things. So that through death, so why does he become, why do we have Christmas? For a number of reasons. But here it wants to stress, he becomes a human so he can die as a human for humans. There's no salvation ultimately, no eternal life unless he is enfleshed. Right? So that these are all tied together. It's not as if there's Easter over there with the death and resurrection and Christmas. Christmas is glorious in itself that God should do such a thing. But it's also got an end and a purpose, which is, according to these verses, so that through death he might do his work and destroy him as the power of death. Now, we could, we, we could look, but we won't, uh, at, at a whole look at why in which the devil has the power of death. It is because of his, as Jesus says in John 8, he is a liar and a murderer. He murders by lying. He convinces you that life is better if you do it without taking God seriously. Even Christians can do that, can't they? At times they go, oh, I don't want to get too serious. Right? You might send me to the Congo or something like that. That was my great fear as a young Christian. He'll send me to, because I hate mosquitoes and I don't like being sweaty. Right? So they often will send me. That's what, that's what he does. If you commit, What's a sick view of God that is? Right? But the devil convinces us that God cannot be trusted in that wholehearted give yourself away way, which is tragic. 
but it's sin that kills. Right? The, the, cause, the ultimate cause of human death is sin. The Bible is very clear on that. Jesus is clear on that. So the devil is seen to have the power because he is the one who tempts, organises, and therefore we are enslaved by our fear of death. Jesus Christ becomes one of us so that he can die for us and free us and disempower the evil one. Now, there's a book that I'm not sure if, if, if anyone's read it. Don't put your hand up now um, because we'd all th well, who knows what we'd think. There's a famous book that I know Andrew Vella and I have read the introduction to it, but written by Jim Packer. Extraordinary book by a guy called John Owens, uh, one of the great giants of the English Reformation and the Puritan movement, called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Apparently John Owen is a horrible writer to read, but he's a genius. But that title itself is what this is about. The Death of Death in the death of Christ, the way that Jesus overcomes death and sin and all these things is through his death. The death of death in the death of Christ. You don't need to read the book now. Um, there was some great scholarship done in the middle of the 20th century that, that reminded us that the basic way that the early church, we're talking about the first, say, 400 or so years of the early church, where the way they spoke about Jesus dying uh, was as Christ the great victor, the conqueror over the things that oppress us. The, he conquers our sin. He conquers our guilt. He conquers death. He conquers the evil one. He conquers evil spirits, which many people in other cultures find an enormous relief, the, the passages that speak about that. Jesus is the great conqueror. He's the great victor. Christus victor was the uh, English translation of the Swedish book that came out that taught us much about this. Christ is the great victor. This is what he says here. He is the one who defeats death and sin for us. And he does it for us. He does it because he loves us. He wasn't a captive of death and sin. You and I were. But because of his love and care, he seeks to set us free. He is the great victor. Right? So that's how you can be set free. To free those, he dies to free those whose lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Verse 17, therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters, in case you missed it the two earlier times. He had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Right? The sting of death, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, is sin. By removing and dealing with our sin and guilt, he saves us from the sting and the poison ultimately of sin and death. He sets us free. Now, I don't know if you feel that freedom yet. Still a bit anxious about death? I imagine you are. People who say they're not frightened of death just aren't thinking. I've, you know, I've, had, I've had people say, I'm not frightened of death. I said, so if I pulled a gun, or worse, if someone who you didn't even know burst into this room and held a gun to your head, you wouldn't be frightened? You liar. Of course you'd be, you'd be scared witless. right? And so you should be. Death is a frightening thing. We're hardwired with all sorts of systems to help us to avoid it. But it is possible in Jesus Christ to face death with a level of joy and even victory and certainly to be able to talk about it. But the way we do it is by pondering it. Um, the fellow, this, this fellow, uh, he says we need to stare at it. We need, but we need to stare into death and more than that, 
to stare at the one who has conquered death because he has. And there's really good evidence that he has. When I was a little kid, the only, the only thing I've ever been frightened of in my entire life, because I'm utterly fearless, that's a joke in case you didn't get it. Um, my old man, I think it might have been because he was in some Masonic thing, or it might have been from the pharmacy guild, I don't know. But once a year we'd all go out on a little ferry on, the, on Sydney Harbour for the Christmas thing. And um, we'd cruise around the harbour and see lovely parts of Sydney Harbour, and then we'd end up at Shark Island or Clark Island for a picnic. And somehow or other Santa Claus would find us. He does like to give lots of presents to rich kids. That seems to be his, his great capacity. So we got more presents, very kind of him. And um, it was a beautiful, I loved it. I used to look forward to the, the, the one ferry ride a year. But I was terrified by going under the Harbour Bridge. And I was really frightened. It's kind of, it's kind of cute, but silly. And my big sister Bronnie would comfort me because she knew I was. After, after all, I don't think I got old enough not to be frightened of it. But I can tell you now when I go under the Harbour Bridge, I'm cool. Right? Um, but Bronnie would try and explain to me about the bridge and, and the engineering and stuff like that. And why would it fall on you now? It hasn't fallen in you know, decades. It hasn't even had a single creak. But I had this fear, this thing, because it would have hurt me if it had fallen on the ferry. And, but what, what has helped me is having some understanding, both of the unlikeliness in terms of time, that it would just happen to fall on me at that moment, but also just the engineers, the utter brilliance of the engineering. It's fantastic. And so the more I understood about that, the cooler I was in terms of fear. And friends, this is exactly as it is in, in questions of death. The better, the more deliberately you study Christ as the victor over sin and the conqueror of death, you can, you can approach death with a level of chilled outness and friends even with a level of joy uh, because death does not have the last word on you. See, he who, he who lasts, laughs last, laughs longest. So there was a bunch of people who laughed on Good Friday because they'd killed Jesus. But he and those who trust him have a much longer laugh because after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday and death has been vanquished and conquered. It's a great cause for massive joy. So 1 Corinthians 15 finishes, or the second last verse says this, having gone through the whole the evidence for the resurrection and the significance of Jesus' resurrection and the fact that it's not just him rising, as we're going to look next week, Andrew's going to take us to a great joyful thing with the, the great victory that we have in the conquest of death and the glory that God has promised for human beings. Listen, thanks be to God. This comes very soon after you know, all sorts of despair about death, but then, um, then the great statement about, you know, oh, death, where is your victory? Mocking death, right? Where's your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He does the work, and if your humble faith is in him, he shares his victory with you. You will have the last laugh on death. We can mock death and say, oh, death, death has been swallowed up by victory. Where, oh, death is your victory? Where, oh, death is your sting? All sorts of religious systems, philosophical systems, spiritual systems will reframe death and they'll try to make it seem nicer and, and they can help in people's fear. 
only, Jesus Christ says, that he will take death on and rip it to, rip it to pieces as he does. He stands beside the, the um, grave of Lazarus, who's four days dead, thoroughly well and truly dead, and says, I am the resurrection and the life. The word resurrection means the standing up of the corpses. Right? That's what he's saying. Easy to say a long way from death, but you say it. it the verses will probably be said here on Wednesday at Joe's funeral. Right? I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the great victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stare into the sun, if you like, and at the same time focus our attention on the sun, on Christ. That's the thing to do. To, to face our fears, but to face the fact there is someone who has utterly crushed death and to know the facts and to find your joy in those great realities. Uh, Jesus says in the book of Revelation... Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last, the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death. Jesus wants his people to know that he was dead. And he ripped the guts out of death. And he has the keys. He can set people free from death. That's what he does. Well, by way of quick conclusion... The hopes and fears of all the world are met in thee tonight. Or more exactly, the hopes and fears of all the world are met in that thee, not the town so much as in the person. It is Jesus Christ who conquers death and shares it with his people. We need to dare to stare. In fact, you may have been taught as a child, don't stare. Do stare at Jesus right? Uh, and, and learn to allow his great victory to overcome our instinctive fears that we can join with the Bible in mocking death, where a death is your victory. Or you can join with John Donne, if you like, if you want to get all cultured. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me. He then goes on and says, it's a bit like having a rest. And the very end of it says, one short Sleep past, and we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. The death of death in the death of Christ. So as we say in that last hymn, and I'll finish on this, that wonderful hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, uses the picture of wandering through the desert, having been released and redeemed by Christ, wandering through the desert to Canaan, the promised land, the home that Joe has just arrived in. The last lines go like this when I tread the verge of Jordan okay the Christians have often used the picture the Jordan River was the last thing they had to cross before they entered the promised land so Christians have often said the river Jordan is like death when I tread the verge of Jordan perhaps you can feel it lapping at your toes bid my anxious fears subside death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side See, that last one is a prayer to Jesus. He is the death of death. And he is the destruction of hell. And he will land us safe on Canaan's side. So death becomes this mixture of difficulty and exceeding joy. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever trusts in me, though they die, yet shall they live.
We are set free from the slavery to the fear of death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how wonderful it is that you take our self-inflicted difficulties seriously. Thank you that you're always calling us to realism. Help us, Lord, to be non-conformist to our culture in every way that we need to be, including this way. That we will be the people who face the inevitability and, frankly, the closeness of our death. Thank you for all the systems you've built into us that keep us alive. But we pray also, Lord, that we would embrace, when it's our time, the certainty of our death and the certainty of your son's triumph over death. May your Holy Spirit enable us to march with confidence through the valley of the shadow of death to be received into your everlasting home. Uh, fill us with joy in this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.